Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy mind, and with all thy soul. In a world where so many of our gods have lived too long and died too late, in a world where so many men have died senselessly and too soon, one grows diffident about all this God-death business. So many gods to spare. Who would miss another or two? except that not even our false gods die. They just wait around off stage for another chance to get in on the act. Then they come upon us from the rear. Take this new god, for example. The old 12th century name for him when he was a sin was the word asedia. It means sloth a deadly apathy and torpor. We haven't really seen him except in monasteries, except that he's been on and off stage all the time. And now he's front and center again in the universities, on the streets, in the restrooms where true pop art is at its best. He is a version mixed with a settled ill will, and his name is hate. On a stage of long-haired, ill-washed devotees of despair, whirling around the shrines of sloth and hate, could a man tell the truth about peace and our hope? We are here, I'm sure, with a hunger born of some great wish, the wish to believe, or the wish to be capable again of belief, or the wish to have some authentic word. Perhaps we could believe if it were not for this old God come up from our sewers. Perhaps we could believe if we were all in on the dialogue, but each of us in the room, in the main, fights his own private war against the premature ending of his ways and means. Our private wars consume us, and the death wish flaunted by the young is a flag for all our wars. So pressed are we that even so grand an occasion as this is for you mostly spectacle and performance. And even our close neighbors have come up late on a dialogue in process and can mostly only watch. We are, all of us, guilty of assuming the onceness and onlyness of our modern moods. And no one can talk of peace and hope unless he has his bearings and can recognize the face and the name of the old moods that disturb us. No one has ever talked of peace with sense who did not talk against the backdrop of a great negation, a 1700-year negation. 
there is a stream of this pessimism and despair so that in all our modern moods and talk, I keep the feeling that I have been over this reeky smoking ground before. It's too much to expect to reverse a 1,700-year asadia from here. We Christians have always talked too glibly about God and peace. Can we now even talk of peace and hope? Only if we do it with the candor forced upon us by the heritage of this modern mood. That is to say, when a man says, I shall talk on peace, there is a reason to stutter and grow timid. Has any man who wished to be a man of peace ever faced a more tangled skein of contradictions to his hopes? Can you expect to find peace in your racial loyalties? Can you expect peace really from the nation or from the city or from your neighbors or your family or yourself? None of our primal and personal categories is a home for peace. All of our buckets leak. All of our repositories of value are homes for war. To withdraw from combat in any one of our corrals may be to fall into a shootout in another. Every man you meet has a potential for enmity. And a man may be, you may be at war in every primal area. You may live in a forest of contradictions and never leave home. If you reject your nation, you must fight against your neighbors for it. If you offend your race group, you will have to watch for bombs. A man simply cannot have peace and a nation, peace and a region, peace and a racial identity. They are all containers where war breaks out. If you keep your race, region, status, you will have war. And where can you go to escape it? It's war or no things. For the violence even in the little Delta Freedom Houses is unbelievable. Where can a selfless, stateless, property-less, neighbor-less man stand. Self and society are locales for war. You are knee-deep in violence from wherever you live. No peace and this humanity, not in history. What then is the nature of our quest for peace? A chimera, an illusion, a death wish to escape the human? From where we are with our treasures is there peace. There is no peace and any lesser God in our pack sack. We shall have to make a very costly choice. For there's no peace if you have property. There's no peace if patriotism is number one. There's no peace if you have position. There's no peace if you keep power. There is no peace and any other priority, for these are the spoils of our warfare. 
it means no peace and anything else, or it means peace and nothing else, or it means war and all the gods and goods you can carry. Look back. The last time you were at peace, you were nine years old. It was Christmas night, and you were pre-puberty, pre-property, and pre-responsibility, but you were already at war with your brothers and your tribe and your neighbors. Where is peace? We shall have to live with war or without anything else unless there is a new kind of peace or a new kind of man. So far in our rapid run, how violent inside are the men who say peace, peace. And when peace is peace, really peace, it is peace at any price. And who wants that? Crucifixion? after a property-less, rank-less, power-less, state-less, family-less existence. Now, it might get us worshipped across 2,000 years if we were remembered at all, which is small comfort on a cross. And so, because peace costs all our treasures, because peace has always cost us all our treasures, we have opted for a lessening of our wars such as will let us keep some of our treasures. We will contain our violence. We will limit our wars. We will approximate peace. There are better ways to fight, we say. There are less vicious weapons. And this, in a sense, may be so. And so, with weapons and treasures on our back, this is the fruitless journey we have taken toward the fighting of little wars. And somehow we never quite remember that the size of the war and the size of the weapon depend only upon the size of the prize and our desire for it. The crime is to suppose that our kind of man with our caliber of weapon, will not eventually shoot it off. The crime is to suppose that poverty can be fixed with property, that pestilence can be fixed with penicillin, that war can be sublimated in trade, that famine can be overcome with surplus, that death can be fixed in an embalming school. The opposite of poverty is not property. Property, per se, means only a richer poverty. The opposite of poverty is not prosperity. The opposite of poverty is community. A community where all are poor, you say. And I say it wouldn't matter if we were really in community and were neighbors. It really wouldn't matter. In scarlet and white, before United Nations General Assembly, 
in faultless French, the prince of prelates and the servant of the servants of God, cried, Jamais plus, jamais plus, never again, never again. War. But we weep that our lessening of war as a weapon is unequal to the task. Our flesh will not contain our violence and we weep for that. We shall live all our lives with all our private and lesser wars and die with it without anything at all unless a transcending of all our desires and wants and needs in the community of a new human race can be met with. And where can we begin this? Why, this is to begin to admit that peace is not the goal of our lives. Peace is a byproduct, a byproduct of a journey we take toward manhood, a real humanity, reflective of a transcendent manhood. For when God talked peace once, he did it with a man, the only man, the man none of our wants could entrap and enslave. There's no way to talk peace till we have talked true manliness. And then peace comes over your shoulder and up from the rear, as always. The star of this hope would be a man who weighs as much naked as he does dressed. He would weigh as much stripped as decorated because he has transcended all his categories. He can move in and out. He is a man to whom nation and property and region and views of race are tools to be used because he knows that for each of us there is something more to be than an American. There is something more to be than a white man. There is something more to be than a local man. This transcendent man, when he appears, has a dimension beyond nation and race and tribe. There is a beyond the nation we must reach after to where no good deed and no gift and no artifact ever need be stamped made in USA. There's a larger race for us to join, the human race. And there is a larger region, something more for us to be, where little adjectives like Southern and white and Protestant and American drop off our lives in the service of the noun which is man. Indeed, there is a larger church than mine, larger than all our Protestant splitness, larger than all our Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Protestant separation. I speak of a true ecumenism, one that would know that at bottom and at source the Jew and the Christian and the Muslim, all 700 million of him, took our rice 
in the same high stream with which this service began, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This would be a truer ecumenism unless we forgot at the same time to remember that incarnation and all our cultural treasures and most of our tools came from even farther east at first and exist for all the sons of earth. Only when you begin to think this way, I think, could it be that the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? Now the risk, danger, and anxiety are all still here, but as we are driven back, back on our origins by threat of nothingness and meaninglessness, this personifying of transcendent manhood that we celebrate in Jesus Christ becomes immense. And we can see both the threat and the promise of our incarnations. The threat that the spirit we have heard about will really smother in the industry and in science and business and government that are our local vehicles. It may really smother. And the promise, a real incarnation in us that living in our time and place, using the tools of our lesser loyalties, we could transcend and serve the grace that makes us so. It happened once. It was acted out. And the word, not silence, was made flesh, not idea, and dwelled among us, so that every time he passed us, grace spilled over on us and faith, not knowledge, and person in a community of love became so vital that any man seized by it would act as if he were recreating it. And you would become, in some of Dean Miller's words, a man on his way, a viator, a sojourner, who has no abiding city but can live in most any you would know not, but you would believe. You would have not, but you would hope for. You would see not, but you would obey. And you would find life within a pilgrim community whose borders are never franchised to a lesser holding. Today, here, Christmas Day, 1965, with all our modern goods and goals, 20 years after World War, twice in our second major Asian involvement, spending irreplaceable lives and with the loss of 10,000 lives per day in our world now due to malnutrition and using 50 times as much for defense as we use for poverty and nearly 25 times as much for defense as for higher education. 40 years out into the new machine brain age, 15 years after the space age, in the second year of the great society, with bombs against poverty beginning to sputter across all Appalachia, and in the first year of the death of God, we can, do, still say God's truest, most authentic word, the oldest and the newest, is you can be whole. 
Weller than well. Carl Menninger puts it somewhere. You can transcend the categories of your existence, moving in and out, belonging to a kingdom beyond you, because you know there's something more to be. For you have now in your reach the good news of Christ, the possibility that the life of love can actually be lived in this dark and bloody battlefield of human history. And this is the Christmas grace. In all our modern moods and ways, I keep the feeling that we've been over this reeking, smoky ground before. It's too much to expect to reverse the dreadful asadia from here, but from a church very like ours once, located in a southern province of a great empire, there once went out a word of a way that was the best we could hear for a thousand years. So mote it be again, if we knew what to say. But this much we know. The stage and the game are bigger than we thought. So vast and so vital that all our little boxes, little boxes, only hold games not worth our lives. We have in our hands unused tools for transforming these games of ours into a drama of redemption. New light is breaking in on the meaning of our lives and work, a new light which speaks of a human potential of which we have hardly dared dream. And we know this. One has gone before us into a manhood and a community within our reach. The method is dialogical. We really have to hear each other. The setting, like this sanctuary, is cruciform, like a cross. And the characters are really human. And the drama has consequence. We can afford to work at being brothers to the race because of a grace we have met here. And there too.